Welcome, ankle biters. You've stumbled on the Fire Fire's Firefetched Fables, the home of tall tales, old chestnuts, fish stories, and other unassorted yarns. We mostly cater to the youngins here, but you grown-ups can have a listen too. If you have a mind to, tap on the follow button on your podcast app, or find us on the Facebook. In the meantime, turn off the TV, put down the cell phone, get yourself a glass of warm milk, and settle in for some old-time storytelling. Tonight's episode... Chapter 11, Paul's Bad Luck. From the Dakotas, after he had completed his contracts there, Paul Bunyan moved over into the Lake States. It is said that he stepped across the Minnesota line carrying his big brinestone under his one arm and Elmer, his famous fore-and-aft Bruce Terrier, under the other in order to balance the weight. Babe, the great blue ox, and Bessie, the yaller cow, were driven on ahead. Babe was laden with all the camp equipment, tools, and other property that had to be moved, while Bessie carried only a church bell around her neck so that she could be located by its sound when she got lost, as her poor eyesight quite often caused her to go astray in spite of the green goggles which she always wore. Behind Paul there trailed a long line of loggers, bearing their turkeys or blanket rolls, for most of his Dakota crew moved eastward with him. A wonderful parade they all made through the wilderness, and it was a shame that no one had a chance to see it pass except the wild creatures of the woods. Paul did not take his big flapjack griddle with him on the first trip, but came back and got it later. First of all, he located a place for his permanent camp, and got all his men started on the building of the shanties, bunkhouses, stables, and other shelters which would be needed. Not until then did he hitch up Jerry and Ginny, his famous mule team, and go after the griddle. Some authorities say that he moved the griddle to the new location by hitching his team to the land the Red Camp River was on, hauling the entire camp, buildings, griddle and all, to the new location. It is more likely, however, that he moved just the griddle, as most of his Red River camp buildings would have been far too small to serve in his new camp. In his Red River camp, he had found the big flapjack so hard to handle that from now on he had Sourdough Sam fix up the hot cake rations in the camp in a little different way. Instead of making one big flapjack, the cooks now began making a lot of little ones, not more than three or four feet across. Forty to fifty of these would be tied together in a bundle, and the ration was one bundle to one man, though there were always a few hearty eaters that came back for a second helping. You folks want some pancakes? Paul extended the railroad tracks from the mess hall to the griddle, and when the flapjacks began getting brown, the trains would run on regular express service. Each car would be loaded down with bales of flapjacks, and a couple of waiters in asbestos suits would perch themselves on top. Then, as they whizzed down the line of tables, they would toss a bale to each man as they went past. This new system saved so much time at breakfast 
that the men were able to get in the woods long before daylight. Paul established his camp on the Big Onion River, near where the Little Auger flows into it. From this central location, he worked all the lake states, logging off most of the white pine forests of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. His work in the Dakotas had made him enthusiastic about logging on a grand scale, and his operations now began to be probably the greatest ever seen, even surpassing those done from his Red River camp. During the first year, however, that Paul was in his Big Onion camp, he was not able to get very much timber cut. Bad luck seemed to follow him that year, and a number of extraordinary misfortunes fell upon him to delay his work. Because of the evil that dogged his footsteps, his crews were hardly ever able to cut more than a million feet of logs a day, and some days not even that. In the first place, Paul had selected a location that was a rather poor one for logging, although the timber that stretched for hundreds of miles around was the thickest and largest he had yet seen. The Big Onion River was a treacherous stream and a very hard one to send a drive of logs over. Also, the hills over which the logs had to be skidded were so rugged that they tested even the great blue ox's enormous strength. Worst of all, though, was the rank growth of wild onions that covered nearly every foot of the ground between the trees and gave the name Big Onion to the nearby river. Their juicy green tops grew higher than onions have ever been known to grow before, reaching above a tall man's chin. They got in the way of every time a logger tried to swing his axe, and stopped nearly all attempts at felling trees. Their juice, crushed from them by trampling feet and swinging axes, spread its strength and savor upon the air, bringing such floods of blinding tears to the eyes of everyone within its range that hardly anything could be done. Onion flavor seasoned everyone so strongly that the men could hardly stand to live with one another, and worst of all, a man could hardly stand to live with himself. Something smells weird, but and it ain't, it's not me. Under such conditions, it was dangerous for a man even to try to use a sharp tool like an axe and Shot Gunderson came near being badly injured in this way. He had started out hunting, as the meat already in camp had become so strongly flavored with onion that the men could no longer eat it. And he had stopped on a hillside to try and rub the onion juice from his streaming eyes. He failed to see a blinded logger come stumbling up the slope toward him, nor did he hear the newcomer's remark of, This hair looks like a good stick as he swung his axe with all his might. It was not until the surprised hunter's yell burst on his ears hey. that the befuddled axeman realized his error. Being able to see but faintly, he had mistaken Shot's leg for the trunk of a pine tree, and only the fact that the hunter was wearing high, heavy leather boots saved him from a painful injury. Paul Bunyan soon became very much discouraged by such a state of things. I've got a good notion to move to another part of the country, he said to his bookkeeper as he wiped the onion tears from his eyes. These vegetables 
have just about made me ready to run away. Though I never thought until now that anything could make me feel that way. Wait just a little longer, pleaded Johnny Inkslinger. When we first came here, I conceived an idea as to how to profitably use what might be made of these same onions that are causing so much trouble. I'm sure, Mr. Bunyan, that if you will wait just a short time longer, you will soon begin to see the results of my cogitation. All right, Johnny, Paul answered him. I have a great deal of faith in you, and so I'll wait a little while longer before moving camp. But I can't stand very much more of this fragrance. Why, already my men have shed so many tears that the big onion has risen out of its banks. Here we have a regular freshet running down the river and no logs for it to carry to the mills. I'm getting plumb disgusted. But Johnny was right. When his plan began to show results, as it did in just a few days later, Paul was very glad he had listened to his efficient bookkeeper. Johnny Inkslinger had heard of the failure of the garlic crop in Italy that year, and unbeknownst to anyone else, he had gotten in touch with the high officials of the Italian government and made a contract with them. They sent over many shiploads of experienced garlic diggers, and these worked industriously in the woods all along the Big Onion River, uprooting the wild onions and drying them for shipment back to their own country, where they took the place of the garlic so badly needed there and arrived just in time to prevent a very serious revolution. Almost before anyone could realize it, there was not a single wild onion left in the woods. Paul was so pleased that he raised Johnny Inkslinger's wages and then set about getting his work into shape again. The great logger had hardly gotten things to running smoothly again when the work was once more held up, this time by the coming of the Big Fog. The fog had drifted down over the country one night, and for several weeks, it was like a thick cotton blanket covering the land. It was so thick that the fish in the river were unable to tell where the river left off and the fog began, and many thousands of them, swimming around in the fog and thinking they were still in the river, became lost in the woods and were left stranded among the trees far from water when the fog finally went down. Paul's men all had to wear mosquito netting over their heads in order to keep the pollywogs out of their faces. The fog was so thick that while it lasted, any cutting of timber was almost out of the question. And so all of the men in camp began devising various sports to help pass the time away. Their favorite game was a fishing contest, which helped to while away many dull hours during the big fog. In this contest, several men would carry big gunny sacks to a favorite spot and stand there, holding the mouths of the sacks wide open. Then they would begin to imitate the cries and calls which the fish made as they swam around through the fog, and the man who enticed the most fish into his bag won the contest. Once, one of the men heard a queer wailing sound some distance away, and thinking that it was some kind of new fish, he began mocking its cries. It came nearer and nearer, and finally he enticed it into his bag. 
he could tell immediately from the feel of it through the bag that the creature was not a fish, and from the roughness of its loose and bumpy skin, he was able very shortly to learn what he had captured. Hooray! he yelled to his companions. I've caught a squonk! And despite the poor animal's desperate wailings, he bundled it under his arm and hurried with it to the bunkhouse. He was greatly excited over his unusual catch, which was indeed a prize, and he looked forward to enjoying the importance which the display of it to his fellows would give him. The squonk, which is one of the rarest animals in the woods, is a very shy creature. Its retiring disposition is due to the shame which it feels on account of its unlovely appearance. It has dull red eyes, a long comical nose, and an ill-fitting warty skin, as well as several other blemishing defects, on account of all of which it intensely dislikes being seen. Because it yearns to be beautiful, and yet is condemned to being so fearfully ugly, it is always unhappy and weeps and wails constantly, leaving a trail of tears wherever it goes. So rarely did it ever get near men that the logger who had caught the squonk was greatly elated and called all his friends to the bunkhouse to see the queer creature when he put it on view. When he opened the bag, however, there was nothing there except some salt water and bubbles. The poor creature, made more unhappy than ever by being caught and being so fearful of being seen in all of its homeliness, had simply dissolved into tears. Ahem, a footnote. Lacrimocorpus dissolvens is the descriptive as well as the scientific name of the squonk. In hunting the animal, the best time is on cold, moonlight nights when the animal sheds its tears slowly and dislikes moving about. The tears freeze as they fall, thus leaving a trail that is very easy to follow. Hemlock forests are the squonk's favorite habitat, and often these creatures can be heard wailing where the gloomy hemlocks stand but back to the dark story. and thick. At one time, during the big fog, the mist began to leak through the cook shanty roof. So Paul called out some of his men and set them to nailing on more shingles. When the fog finally cleared away, there was a great crash where the men had done their work, and they saw then what they had done. The thickness of the fog had confused them, and instead of nailing the shingles on the cook shanty roof, as they thought they were doing, they had nailed them on to the fog itself, which, of course, let the new roof collapse when its support began to disappear. Now, don't make any more mistakes. Paul Bunyan finally figured out a way to get rid of the big fog. He hitched Babe up to a great plow, made a lot of ditches, and drained the fog right back into the river. The big fog was probably the cause of the immense mosquitoes that soon afterwards began to appear. They swarmed through the woods in ever-increasing numbers and became a real menace to the workmen in Paul's camp. One of the few mistakes which the great logger ever made was when he thought out the plan of fighting off the mosquitoes with bumblebees. He sent away for a lot of extra big bees and turned them loose, expecting them to get rid of the pests in no time at all. 
But instead of fighting them, the bees made friends with the mosquitoes. They became so friendly that they intermarried, and the young bee mosquitoes that resulted were worse than their parents, for they had a stinger at both ends. Those youngsters were terrors, and they made life not only miserable, but dangerous for everyone in the woods. Paul had to put extra guards with pike poles, peavies, and axes for weapons into the stables to fight the insects away from the animals when they succeeded in tearing the shakes off the roof so that they could get in. This new crop of gigantic insects was so large that there was not nearly enough of them to eat after they finished killing off all the wild animals in the woods nearby. As a result of their ferocious instincts, it was not long before they became so dangerous that a man was taking his life in his hands if he even went out of doors. Paul finally managed to play a trick on them, though, that got rid of most of them. He sneaked a lot of men down into the fire hole under the big flapjack griddle and then barricaded the place they had come in. The swarm of bee mosquitoes settled down thick all over the griddle, smelling the men underneath, and tried their best with both stingers to bore their way to where the men were. Paul waited until the insects had their stingers wedged deeply into the steel, and then he and his men had an easy time killing them off with axes and clubs as their weapons were rammed tightly into the griddle, and they couldn't fight back. They nearly ruined the big griddle, though, and it later had to be turned over so the other side could be used. The stingers had punctured the first side so full of big holes that the cook boys would have been in great danger of falling in as they skated around to grease the griddle. After these ferocious creatures had been subdued, Paul and his men heaved great sighs of relief, thinking that their bad luck was over and they would soon be getting the big onion camp to running along on its expected schedule. Winter was at hand, and everyone set about putting everything into the best of shape in hope of securing a record cut of logs during the months to come. Oh boy, that sure was a whole heap of bad luck for old Paul Bunyan. But lucky for you, there's more to this story on the next episode of Far Fire's Farfetch Fables. Come on back and give a listen. But first, go clean your room, your little varmints. Far, far.